Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, a series focusing on leading through uncertain times, exploring qualities, tools, tactics, and mindset government executives may need to navigate unsettling times and transform order out of chaos. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. The leaders are responsible for envisioning, shaping, and safeguarding the future, creating clarity amidst uncertainty. And this is no small feat and has made increasingly difficult in the 21st century, where rapid, unforeseen change seems to be the only constant. Leaders make decisions that impact lives. In hard times and in hard situations, a leader's impact and legacy are amplified. One of the greatest challenges for most leaders is doing hard things in a human way. What does it mean to be a wise and compassionate leader? How can leaders transform how they lead? And what tools and methods can help leaders be more effective? I will explore these questions and much more with Jacqueline Carter, co-author of Compassionate Leadership, How to Do Hard Things in Human Ways. Jacqueline, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you so much, Michael. It's wonderful to be here. So, Jacqueline, why is being hard and being human not mutually exclusive? And to what extent is doing hard things often the most human things to do? Yeah, it's a great question to start out with. And and I think one of the things is that for a long time, many of us have assumed that in order to be a good leader, you know, we know leaders that we have to make tough decisions, we have to give people tough feedback, we have to announce layoffs, we have to tell somebody they didn't get the promotion that we wanted. And we assumed that to be able to do that, we had to you know, put our armor on and brace ourselves and be able to do the hard thing. And what we found in our research, and this was really our research question that we went into, is, is it true that, that these hard things have to be with the armor on and we can't be more human? And what we found in our research, which was really quite inspiring to us, is in fact, when we can do those hard things, but bring our humanity and recognize the human being in front of us or the human beings in front of us, not only can we have more positive outcomes for the individual, for ourselves, and for the organization. And so that's what really inspired us is to recognize that hard and human are not mutually exclusive. They're not dichotomies. They're not polarities. We can bring these two two things together. And when we do, we're able to generate much more beneficial outcomes for everybody involved. And so that goes into my next question around the need that you just pointed out. Doing hard things in a human way is not new. But I was wondering, as I was reading your book, why has the need for it increased recently? Yeah, I think that uh, everybody listening can, can you know relate to the past two years and all of the challenges that we've faced. Um, so I think that there's a number of drivers. I think that number one, you know, it used to be, I mean, there used to be a uh, an image of a successful leader that was hard, you know, the one that was making the tough decisions and was able to stand up and, you know, not necessarily care about everybody's individual feelings. And that was a, an image that we had of a of an old leader that um, that is no longer relevant. What we've seen over the pandemic is that we've all recognized our own vulnerabilities. And in fact, 
the vulnerability that we've been able to share with each other as human beings, knowing that we've all experienced challenges, has enabled us to create more connections and has enabled us to be able to, to see that we're all in this together. And when we see we're all in this together, we're able to be stronger. But at the same time, what we see in the research is that the next generation of workers, they want a human leader. They want to know who you are. They don't want to see you as being some tough guy or gal uh, that has all the answers because they know you don't. And so there's a real push from the next generation to be able to, to create a more human world of work and to be bring more of our humanity. Um, and I think the final thing that we're seeing just in terms of inclusion and diversity and belonging, we know that these things are so critical to us, more critical than they've ever been before. And if we as leaders are not able to create an inclusive environment that makes all people feel like they have a role and they feel valued, then we are not going to be able to be successful. And we can only do that by really being able to be human ourselves and, and be vulnerable. So your book, Jacqueline, introduces a concept called wise compassion. I was hoping you'd explain and define each of the terms, wise, wisdom, and compassion for us and how these concepts are integrated and really sort of when they're integrated, illustrate the behavior leaders need today to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with wise. The way that we look at wisdom, it's about knowing the right thing to do and having the courage to be able to do it. So an example to differentiate being wise versus being smart, smart would be I have the answer. Wise is I know that I shouldn't share the answer because I'm going to give my team the opportunity to be able to, to debate and be able to process something on their own. Compassion is really the intention to be a benefit. And this is really about recognizing that for us as leaders, having the intention to be able to support our people, having that genuine care is really what enables them to be able to flourish. And it's different than empathy, which I think we might get to in a moment, but that's one of the distinctions that we make around compassion. Yeah, we're definitely going to touch on that and, and a beautiful job of distinguishing empathy from compassion. I think it's necessary in order to understand the theme of your new book. But could you explain to us, uh, Jacqueline, how does leading with wise compassion greatly benefit oneself as the leader? How does it benefit the leader? Yeah, absolutely. So let's start out with the benefits for the leaders. What we found in our research, and just to be able to give a sense, is that now, we interviewed over 350 C-suite executives. We had the privilege of being able to partner with uh, with HBR as well as Forbes to be able to tap into a, a really broad database of over 70,000 leaders, over 1 million data points, um, companies uh, from, from countries from 72 countries around the world. And we also partnered with a number of academic institutions to be able to help us bring rigor to the data. And one of the things that we found was that when we as leaders, so just as you said, starting off with the benefits for us as leaders, when we as leaders are able to be more wise and more compassionate, what we found is that we ourselves have 66% lower stress, 200% less intention to quit, 14% greater efficacy as a leader. And overall, it enables us, I think the bottom line, and it kind of makes sense, when we're able to bring both the wisdom that we need to, to know what the right thing to do and the compassion to have that intention to be a benefit, it may be hard, but enables us to be able to bring the best of ourselves and we benefit greatly from that. 
That's terrific. And I was wondering the other side of that is how does it benefit those you lead and the organization as a whole when you actually as a leader uh, find out a way of, of creating that wise compassion and using it to your advantage? Yeah, and this was really quite interesting. So in our research, we not only invited leaders to rate themselves in terms of how wise and compassionate they thought they were, but as with any good research study, we also invited the opportunity for their followers to assess them. And what we found is that looking at how followers rate their leaders, when followers rate their leaders as being both high on wisdom and high on compassion, they have exponentially better results and looking at things like what we found was two and a half greater job satisfaction, two times greater organizational commitment, two times better job performance, three times less um, burnout, much higher leader satisfaction and much higher job engagement. So overall across the board, when you as an employee see your leader as being both wise and compassionate, you then have better outcomes. And that's what we saw as being so inspiring. And it's really quite interesting because we looked at obviously, you know, a wise leader, being a wise leader has benefits, being a compassionate leader has benefits, but it was really when we're able to combine both of those things that as we see in the book, the real magic happens. And let's get into that real magic because aside from just introducing concepts to your reader, you, you, your, your books, whether it's uh, The Mind of the Leader or your recent book, Compassionate Leadership, really provide practical insights and, and give some tools for folks to understand and maybe apply these insights to their life. And where I want to go with this is, could you describe for us the wise compassion matrix? Explain each of the four quadrants and how best can a leader use and apply the insights outlined in this matrix to become a compassionate leader? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially the wise compassion matrix was the framework that we used to be able to understand what holds us back from bringing more wisdom and compassion to the table. And so if you can visualize the idea of looking at the polarities from being caring versus being uncaring and on the, so that would be, that's what we put in terms of the vertical axis and on the horizontal axis, what we look at the difference between being wise versus being unwise. And from there, you can put together a matrix. So in the first quadrant, what we can see is when we over-index on care, but don't have enough wisdom. And we call that quadrant one, which we see as being, which we label as caring avoidance. And it's essentially when we let care be a barrier to action. And if you've ever had the experience where you didn't give with somebody tough feedback because you didn't want to hurt their feelings, you are in quadrant one. We also look at another uh, space in the matrix, which we label as quadrant three, which is when we have low wisdom and low care. And you might think, you know, I would never want to be there. And, and Jacqueline, you don't know me. I'm never in that quadrant. And trust me, what we found in our research, and also if we're honest with ourselves, we can all end up in this quadrant, which we call ineffective indifference. And essentially, it's when we become overwhelmed, when we're subject to our biases, when we're just not really showing up as the best leader that we can be, not in terms of wisdom or compassion. The other thing that we found, which was really quite interesting, is we can also end up in quadrant number four, which we call uncaring execution. And that's when we have the wisdom, we know the right things to do, and we have the courage to do it, but we're not focusing on that intention to be a benefit and bringing that care to the table. And what we found is a lot of leaders they really felt like that's where, you know, they're supposed to be as leaders. As I said, you kind of got to put your 
uh, you know, your brave front on and just get the dirty job done because you can't afford to be able to actually care about people. And that was really what we found was that's a false, you know, that's an illusion and, and it's a false dichotomy. We can then go into what we label as quadrant two, which is when we can bring wisdom and compassion to the table to do hard things, but do them in a human way. That's terrific. So, you know, you also um, provide some good insight on how to avoid what you what you conceive as the traps of ignorance and indifference and operate in the space of wisdom and compassion. How do we avoid these traps? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So especially, so I'll start off with ineffective indifference. So what we see there is it's really about being able to, to be more mindful, to be able to be more present, to, to recognize when we're overwhelmed. And we know that when we're overwhelmed, we are not our best selves. And when we are able to, to check in with not only ourselves, to be able to be more present, check in with our intentions. So a lot of work that we do is talking to leaders, like, what kind of leader do you want to be? What do you, you want to be known for? What's important to you? And when we can be more intentional and we can also be more vulnerable, it enables us already to be more in that wise compassion quadrant. So if we recognize that one of the key things for leaders is it's not about us, it's actually about inspiring and motivating others, that helps us to set the right intention. Then we can overcome busyness by being more present, being more focused. That enables us to be able to get out of that quadrant of ineffective indifference. That's wonderful. You know, your book also identifies, I believe, sort of the four skill sets needed for a leader to operate within wise compassion when doing hard things. And I believe you you illustrate those four uh, skill sets using the concept of the flywheel. I, perhaps you can share with us a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So many of you listeners are probably familiar with the flywheel concept. The idea is, you know, the first time you spin a wheel, it could be a little bit difficult and it might be hard, but the more times that you activate it, the more times you spin that wheel, the easier that it gets. And it also has a, a positive reinforcement mechanism that one step leads to the next, leads to the next, and ultimately leads to better outcomes. So the four steps in the wise compassion flywheel that it can is based on our research to really how it solves the, it addresses the question, how can I be more in quadrant two? And the first step in the flywheel is what we call caring presence. And it sounds simple, but we know that we all do get distracted. Our minds do have a tendency to wander. So the mantra that we use to help us to bring more presence to our leadership is to be here now. The second step in the flywheel is what we call caring courage. And we also have a mantra for that, which is courage over comfort and basically recognizing that although we as leaders like to take risks, we are also comfort seekers and we avoid social interactions that will make us uncomfortable. So we need to, in order to do hard things, we need to have courage over comfort. The third step is what we call caring candor. And the mantra that we have for that is direct is faster. We need to be able to bring candor to the table, but we need to do it in a caring way. So this is different than brutal honesty, but really make sure that we put things on the table so that people know where they stand and they can move forward. The final step is what we call caring transparency. And for that, the mantra is clarity is kindness, really about making sure that the messages I send are the messages you receive, that active listening, uh, and that opportunity to be authentic and be vulnerable so that we can learn, did, did the message that I send, did it land in the way that I tended? 
And once we're able to do that, to be able to get that feedback, it helps us to be able to then be more present, be more courageous, be more candid, and the cycle goes on. And what we found is when we're able to bring these steps, these four steps, although they sound simple, they're simple in principle, but not always so easy to apply. But when we're able to apply them, we found that it increases trust, psychological safety, and performance. What does it mean to be a wise, compassionate leader? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What are key leadership qualities for a digital age? How can we become a mindful leader? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Jacqueline Carter, co-author with Rasmus Hugard of The Mind of a Leader, How to Lead Yourself, Your People, and Your Organization for Extraordinary Results. First, why is it critically important and almost foundational to understand how you lead and who you are. When we looked at a lot of leadership development programs today, they will start with external factors, Mm -hmm. like how good you are at strategy or how good you are at marketing or how good you are at finance. But it's kind of like building a house and starting with a roof. If you don't fundamentally understand who you are and how you show up, and most importantly, and this is really the mind of the leader gets into how your mind actually works, then you're really missing out on the opportunities to be able to dive deeper into how you want to show up. What is your vision for yourself as a leader? What are the values that are important to you? And based on those values and that vision that you have for yourself of what kind of leader you want to be, how can you actually make sure that you work towards achieving those? And I think specifically for a lot of leaders, what we saw is that what got you here won't get you there. So leaders who are really successful rising up through the ranks in their career, they get to this inflection point where all of those great things that they were really good at. And when they get put in that that one leadership role where now they actually have to get others to be creative, others to be able to develop the projects and tools and systems, it takes a different mind. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Jacqueline Carter, co-author of Compassionate Leadership, 
how to do hard things in human ways. And I want to talk about your first chapter, and I found it very interesting. And we're going to delve into the idea of unlearning management and learning and relearning being human. But I want you to take some time, Jacqueline, to explain and distinguish for our listeners the differences between leadership uh, and management, and why is it so important to unlearn management, and how can we do that? Yeah, I think the really simple way to answer that is, do you want to be managed? And most of us, I think the answer to that simple question would be no. None of us want to be managed. Now, do you want to have a leader that inspires you, that supports your development, that cares about you, that cares about the organization, that's someone that you can follow? And I think when we look at it from that individual's that you know individual perspective, we can see that the difference between management is really about doing things, where leadership is really about being. And the difference between somebody that can be inspiring in terms of uh, us as a leader um, is really where we want to unlearn those tactics that we might have had about management being around controlling people or about boxes in a hierarchy. And leadership is really about having that intention to be able to create that more human world of work where we can all thrive. Yeah, and I, you know, you talk about the research you did to get the the insights for your book, but I also was interested in some of the anecdotes you shared and around the idea that we are hardwired, so to speak, to be caring and collaborative. And, and the concept, which I think might be new for some folks, is the survival of the kindest is more accurate than the survival of the fittest. Can you elaborate? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because this was so inspiring to me to actually, you know, go back to, you know, we've all heard of Darwin's theory of survival of the fittest. And when we dug into the research, and this is, you know, a great shout out to a lot of researchers, anthropologists looking at our history as, as tribal beings and in the early stages of brain development. And, and, and what they find is actually that we are social beings. We fundamentally recognize that we cannot survive on our own. And our great, 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 great ancestors, what they understood, so as homo sapiens, what they understood and what they were able to develop is our ability to create connections, not only within tribe, but also to be able to create connections and create trust so that we could trade with other tribes and work together when it's necessary. And not to glorify, you know, the, the days of, of tribal's existence, because not to say that that it was it was peaceful or calm. Um, but what we do know is that it is our ability to connect with each other and be kind to each other that enables us to be able to survive and support each other. So that's, it is really the survival of the kindness that enables us to be successful. So once again, I wanted to talk about the uh, unlearning aspect uh, that you uh, identify in your book. It is unlearning the management, relearning to be human. Could you share with us some examples and perhaps strategies for how to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first one is just, as I talked about already, you know, remember what's important to you, you know, look at what kind of a leader do you want to be? And most likely, that's not a great manager. Most likely, when you look at your own intentions and aspirations around leadership, it is around inspiring others, it is around leaving a legacy. And the other aspect that we really see in terms of unlearning management and relearning being, being human is it's also around recognizing our common humanity. You know, most of us recognize that 
you know, we may have differences in terms of we may see things from different perspectives, we may have different ideas, but essentially as human beings, we can recognize that we all want to be happy. We, we all want to come to work each day and feel a sense of fulfillment. And for us as leaders, when we can really tap into our common humanity, we can overcome some of those conflicts and, and difficulties that really can get, just get in our way of us being able to be more successful together. What are some of the questions, Jacqueline, leaders should ask themselves whenever they face a difficult decision? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And this was something that we asked uh, all of the leaders that, uh, that we spoke with is how do you come to that wise and compassionate uh, decision? And it's really, you know, three things that we look at is one, the first question is, you know, is this selfish or is this selfless? So are we looking out for our own interests or are we truly willing to look at the interests of the group? Um, is it aligned with, with my purpose and uh, my intentions, you know, my values as a leader and also the purpose of my corporation? And then the third thing, is it is it focusing on the greater good, uh, even though there may be short-term negative outcomes, but is this looking at what will be beneficial in the long run? And that beneficial could be, you know, for, for, the, for the organization as a whole, um, but also looking at in terms of society, looking at benefits, even bigger picture perspective. So as a follow-up to that question around the the the, the how how you should uh, you know prepare yourself for for a big decision if you're a leader. I was wondering what are some of the other questions that can help leaders develop what you would call a true north that can guide them through these difficult situations. Yeah, I think I think certainly I would say not only in terms of some of the questions um, but I, but I also think it's around being in community and getting, getting, getting other people to help you in terms of reflecting on, um, how you show up as a leader. I think one of the things that we know is that we, we all can have pretty grand illusions about how we're perceived. And one of the things that we've really seen in, in our work with leaders is a real journey into self-awareness and self-awareness not only includes what I think I know about myself, but really opening myself to an opportunity to see how others perceive me and getting really good insight around that. Um, so I think that's a real starting point. And then, you know, other things is, you know, like, you know, putting yourself in, in other people's shoes, really making sure that uh, that you're willing to, to give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, another strategy is always to give more than you take. Um, but fundamentally, you know, one of the things that, uh, that's uh, a simple but powerful question is, is asking yourself, you know, how can I be a benefit? Let's say, and this was some of the, the stories that we heard from leaders is, you know, even if let's say you have to, um, you know, make an announcement, one of the, the leaders that we spoke with had to, had to shut down an entire factory and you can still come to that and say, but how can I be a benefit? How can I be a benefit? These people are going to lose their jobs or they need to transition somewhere else, but I can still show up and be a benefit to these people. And asking yourself, how can I be a benefit is a great way for you to be able to, to ensure that you show up in the best way possible. And, and that's one way, uh, as you talk about leaders having to do the necessary evils, whether it's, you know, reduction in force or a changing of a location, the closing of, a, of, of, of an office, as you just alluded to. Uh, are there any other insights you can offer a leader on properly handling those necessary evils? 
Yeah, I think that, uh, as I said, uh, phone a friend, um, really making sure that you get other people to help to to test you. That was one of the things that that we heard a lot from the leaders that we spoke with is the loneliness that they experienced, especially as you rise up in ranks and, and at the C-suite level. And the leaders that really found people that they could confide in when they're having to make those really, really, really difficult decisions and and making sure that they're testing themselves in terms of those three questions you know is you know is this am i you know am i making sure that i'm looking at this from uh from a selfless perspective and not just from my own perspective um aligning with purpose and the greater good so i think that that's really you know probably one of the key things that we found is really making sure that that you get help in terms of challenging your perspectives and also to be able to get help in terms of testing things out, you know, here's how I think I want to present this, love to be able to get some feedback. Yeah, I was wondering, Jacqueline, are there any um, vignettes in the book that you might want to share with us about how certain leaders that you talk to actually did this in real time? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's so many. I don't want to give away too many from the book, but I, I think, um, you know, one of them uh, maybe, and, and actually it alludes to the uh, the example that I just gave, and it was Severin Schwan, the CEO of Roche, uh, who talked to us about, you know, his experience when he did have to fly to the U.S., um, their U.S. headquarters based in New Jersey, and uh, and had to basically let people know um, that uh, that the that that office was going to close, and um, and this was you know for him you know it was it was it was incredibly challenging. It was it was based on again I'll give you the let you read the background, but based on a uh, a newly a new acquisition of Genentech, and so there was all kinds of challenges, um, and this was affecting you know thousands of lives, uh, you know families that were going to be permanently changed and even uprooted because of this decision. And, you know, for him, and it was really interesting, you know, we just talked about, you know, it's, and I think sometimes we put leaders on a pedestal, we, we don't think of them as being human, you know, when they have to make these decisions. And I think this was really one of the things that we wanted to get behind and, and getting these leaders to share their stories is, you know, as he was flying over, he just, you know, the own emotional experience that that flagged him. And the other thing was that he couldn't let because of all different kinds of um, pr privacy issues, obviously, and protection. He couldn't let anybody know. And so we had to, you know, walk into that room um, and be able to let people stand up and let people know uh, that uh, this, like, you know, life-changing news. Um, and and for him, uh, you know, it was it was really important to be able to, to ask himself what was important to him and make sure that he didn't close his heart. And he he knew that it would be really easy to for him to be able to protect himself by by not thinking about all those individuals and what he realized was that you know the key thing for him was to be able to to be compassionate to open up himself so that when he delivered the news as tough as it was um that he could take in um uh, you know the care for and 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 the impact and knowing that there was anger and frustration uh, but knowing that he wasn't closing his heart and knowing that he was opening himself up to really be able to to support the journey going forward. So now we're on to another topic that kind of we, we alluded to earlier, and that is the, the distinction between empathy and compassion. I was hoping you could spend a little time and, and kind of highlight that for us. And, and more importantly, uh, Jacqueline, how critical is it for leaders to connect with others through empathy, but lead with compassion? 
Yeah, absolutely. And so I want to, because it's so important, and I know you have a global audience, um, you know, definitions are very important and we can use the same term and we can mean different things. So we wanted to really look at how we define empathy and how we define compassion. And for that, we actually went to neuroscientists that study our experience from a brain perspective, how we experience empathy versus how we experience compassion. And the way that we're gonna define empathy to be able to help us level set to make sure that we're talking about the same thing is the ability to feel with another person. And this is something that I just wanna say, you know, I don't wanna talk bad on empathy because empathy is an amazing human capacity that we all have to be able to feel what another person feels. It's, you know, why we, we cry at movies. Uh, it's why we're able to, you know, celebrate someone's joy and really feel happy for them. So connecting with empathy is incredibly important. But what we found is that although this is incredibly important, it actually does have some downsides. And specifically, we know that we empathize more with people that look like us versus people that don't like look like us. So it's a challenge for us in terms of diversity and inclusion. We know that we can over-index on empathy so that we can actually get sucked into too much empathy and we end up in empathetic burnout ourselves. Um, but we also know it can lead to poor moral decisions. If we empathize with one person, we might decide, oh, I'm going to help them out as opposed to looking at, at it for the greater good. So the key thing is empathy is actually, we experience empathy in the emotional parts of our brain, whereas when we're able to make that neurological shift to compassion, we actually experience compassion in the prefrontal cortex, so the more rational executive functioning parts of our brain. And when we can make that shift, it enables us to then look at things from that greater good, from that longer term perspective, allowing ourselves to essentially get the emotional aspects out of the way so that we can make sure that we're having, we're making the best decisions possible. And when we're able to do that, uh, we can actually increase, uh, we have a greater sense of control for ourselves. We can actually increase the opportunity to make better decisions, more wiser decisions. Um, but also to be able to have longer term benefits, not only for us as our individual selves, but also for the team and for the organization. What are some of the pitfalls to empathy? And, and you introduced this concept of the empathetic hijack. How can we overcome that? Yeah, it's it's a really, really important thing to look at. What we know right now is many of us probably can relate to at some point in the last two years experiencing empathetic hijack. And it, again, I just wanna emphasize, it's a, it's a beautiful human experience that we can really connect with another person's struggles, um, but as a leader, it can paralyze us. And so, you know, that's really what it looks like. It's, you know, and I'll just, to, you know, share an example, recent example, you know, talking to a leader who has a member of his team that uh, was doing outstanding pre-pandemic, but has gone through a lot of really, really, really tough challenges, uh, losing a family member, having a child that's got some really issues. And she's no longer a, a top performer. And the leader that I spoke with just was saying to me, Jacqueline, you know, I don't know what to do because, you know, every time I talk to her, she's sharing with me all of these, these challenges that she's experiencing. And I really care about her. And I, I know it's tough, um, but I don't know. I, I don't want to tell. I don't. I don't know how to tell her that she's not doing a good job anymore, because uh, that feels unkind. And so he was asking me, you know, how can I? What does it look like to be a compassionate leadership in a situation like this? 
And, and what I talked to him about is I said, you know, I think you might be getting stuck in empathy. And, and again, that's beautiful. You know, it's beautiful that you care about your employee and you're resonating with her challenges, but in the long run, it's not going to be helpful for her and her career. And so we invited him to be able to take that step back and look at things from a compassionate perspective, which is connecting with empathy, showing you care, but then making sure you've got to be honest with her. You've got to give her the feedback that she's not doing well. And in fact, we worked, walked it through and he ended up having the conversation with her. And what he found was that it was actually, it wasn't really beneficial for her, for him to spend so much time talking about her challenges. It actually drove her to be able to, to go into more of a negative thought spiral. And what he found was when he was able to shift the conversation more into the work performance and how they could focus on her getting back up to being a top performer, it was a great way for her to be able to feel more empowered in a part of her life because she was feeling very disempowered in other parts of her life. That's that's really interesting story, very important. Why is it critically also important for leaders to to be up to the task of doing hard things? And how can leaders navigate those hits they take, which is associated with doing hard things? Yeah, absolutely. And this was something um, Jesper Broden, the CEO of IKEA, of Ikea talked to us about one of the first things that he asks himself before stepping into a hard thing is he would say, you know, do I have the courage and the stamina to be able to do this? And, and this is really something is recognizing that doing hard things is hard um, and it does take an emotional toll. And the key thing for us, and, and this is really what we found in our research and we shared in the book, um, but we really need to make sure that we put our own oxygen mask on first. We cannot help other people if we are not in a good frame of mind. So we do need to be selfish about self-care so that we can be selflessly self-serving for others. What strategies can be applied to transform how we lead? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Jacqueline Carter, co-author of Compassionate Leadership, How to Do Hard Things in Human Ways. You also point out, Jacqueline, uh, the concept of busyness and how it can impact leadership. How do we overcome busyness? Can you share some insights there? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll just say, first of all, one of the things that um, that we found in our research and that we know intuitively, but I think is good for us to remember is that we live in a culture where we praise busyness. I mean, if you, Michael, if you were to say to me, you know, Jacqueline, how are you doing? And I would say, I'm not busy at all. You know, I, I have so much time and space on my hands. You would be like, yeah, I'm never going to bring her back for an interview because she's obviously not a very productive human being and not a good contributor to society. So, you know, we have sense that busyness means productivity, and that is absolutely not true. Busy, being busy does not mean doing the right things. It means I have a lot of things to do, and potentially I'm really not very prioritized about what are the most important. And so I think the first thing that I just want to say is that I really want to encourage us to question how busy we are and how proud we are of how busy we are, and consider another way of looking at what if we were more proud of being not busy? <laughs> and, and I'm going to say this, I don't want to get shot down by all of the listeners. Stay with me here with this. Um, but the idea being is that, you know, if I have, let's say I have 10 things that I absolutely have to get done today, but realistically, I only have time to get six of them done. I can certainly feel busy because, wow, I've got these 10 things that I have to do. But the idea of avoiding busyness and, and, and what we talk about is, you know, busyness kills the heart because it makes us feel under pressure. It makes us not our best selves. It can lead us into quadrant three, that ineffective indifference. But instead, you know, going back to that, if I say, you know, I've got 10 things I really need to do, I can only get six. If I can really just, you know, have a really ruthless prioritization of, okay, like I got to pick the six things that I'm actually going to get done. And I'm going to let go of the four things I cannot, I do not have time to do as important as they are, then I can really focus on those six things and do them well. And like, for example, one of the things might be having a really tough conversation with one of mem a member of my team. I do not want to have a busy mind. I want to be really present. I want to be focused. I want to be thoughtful to make sure that I don't let busyness, my own busyness, get in the way of me making sure I can be my best self in that conversation um, and in everything that I do. Well, you know, you point out in the book, Jacqueline, um, you and your co-authors, co that um, being your best self means being, as a leader, uh, fully present. I was hoping you could elaborate more on what you mean by that. And how does mindfulness help create better presence and trust? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as you know, Michael, we've written extensively on the value of, of mindfulness and being present. Um, but I think the simple way to look at it from a compassionate leadership perspective is the simple, simple phrase, if you aren't there, you can't care. And what we know is that our mind has a natural tendency to wander. So even in the span of, you know, this conversation, I'm sure some of the listeners out there, your mind might have wandered to other things. You may have got distracted. Don't worry. I will not take it personally. I know that is naturally how our brain works and our default mode of operation. But the key thing then is recognize, okay, yes, we get distracted. Yes, we have a wandering mind. But in terms of being our best selves, we need to be here. We need to be able to be present. And it's not just about being physically present, but it's really about being mentally present. We've all had the experience where it's like, I can see you talking, but the signals that you're sending, I am not receiving because I am somewhere else. 
And sometimes that can be, you know, we're in a conversation and I'm focused on the next thing that I want to say or how I'm going to answer your question. And these are all normal and natural tendencies of the brain. But the key foundation, the starting point for compassionate leadership is to be able to be here now, to be more present physically and mentally so that we can be intentional about how we show up and also really not let people know they can feel if you're there and that if they feel that you're there, then they know that you care. That's a great way to put it. Um, what do you mean by the power of pause? So I'm <laughs> just doing uh, The power of the pause is that we know that by default, our brain gets triggered by different stimuli in our environment and we get into reactivity mode. And what we know is that oftentimes for anybody who's ever said something that they didn't want to say and regretted it afterwards, then you are welcome, welcome to the club because I'm in that with you. We know that we can get caught up in reactivity and it's not always our best selves. So the power of the pause is a simple intervention that enables us to just take a moment and choose how we want to respond to any given situation. So let's say, you know, we get an email and our, you know, and it's immediately triggering a negative reaction. Like, why did you write that to me? Power of the pause. Take a moment, take a breath and think about, okay, you know, maybe, you know, what, what are, why might this person, what might've been going on for this person when they sent this email? What's, what what might be challenging for them? How can I how can I be a benefit? So creating that the power of the pause is to create space so that we can be the best version of ourselves. So Jacqueline, what role does courage play in being a compassionate leader? And are there any strategies you'd like to share to help leaders be more courageous? Yeah, absolutely. Courage plays a huge, huge role. Um, as I said earlier, we know that we are social beings. We know that Michael, I could I could hold a, a club and threaten to hit you over your head. That would cause a, a fear response, but a greater fear is social rejection. And, and that is something that we have to recognize that we know that we cannot survive on our own and we are hardwired to be afraid of any kind of social interaction or social backlash. And that's why social media right now has all kinds of benefits and all kinds of downsides because it triggers us in terms of fears of social rejection and fears of not being included. And so doing hard things requires courage because we have to take that risk of, you know, me saying, telling you something you don't want to hear I not only am fearful of you, you know, of me hurting your feelings, but also I'm fearful of you thinking I'm a jerk, you know, or you thinking, you telling everybody else I'm a jerk, which would even be worse for me. So fundamentally, courage is, is foundational for doing hard things. And the way that we look at courage is really about feeling the fear and being willing to do it anyway. And, and that's really about making sure that, that we recognize um, doing hard things is hard and it needs courage uh, and being able to motivate ourselves to step into that. And, and a simple tip, one of the things that we found in our work with leaders that's really helpful is you know, a simple strategy, name it to tame it. When we can name what it is that I fear in this situation. And so maybe it is, I you know, I fear, Michael, you're not gonna like me, or I fear I'm not gonna, 
you know, be seen as being a competent leader. But if I can name it, then I can start to tame it and work with it so that then I can motivate myself to do the thing that I that I know I need to do. That's great, great insight. So, you know, you you, you came up with another uh, concept in the book called direct is faster. And I found it fascinating. Uh, what do you mean by that? And perhaps you could share some strategies, some insights on how to bring more candor into one's leadership. Yeah, yeah. No, and this, uh, thank you. And this was something that, uh, first of all, I'll just say um, that there is some cultural differences in terms of what candor, caring candor looks like. And it looks different in Tokyo than uh, than in New York or in, in Amsterdam versus other parts of the world. So it's just important to say that that uh, that caring candor does have cultural differences. But the fundamental aspect of caring candor is that we we can't have the conversation if we're not direct with each other. So if I don't know what's on your mind or what's going on, I don't have the ability to be able to engage in a really effective conversation with you. And so the idea of direct is faster is making sure that we don't beat around the bush that we don't wrap things in a bunch of niceties so that people actually really don't even know what you're talking about, that we have the courage, which is why courage comes first, to then make sure that we're able to deliver the tough message and deliver it as clearly and as direct as possible. And that's really what direct is faster is all about. And, you know, and, and, and you've probably, you know, again, many of us have had the experience where you know, somebody invites you to a meeting and they start asking you about different things and you know something is coming, but you don't know what it is, but it actually activates our, our nervous system in a negative way where we start to create anxieties. And then when the message finally comes out, we're already so wired and so anxious that we, that we don't enable ourselves to be able to respond in the best way. So, you know, a simple strategy around direct is faster is Again, within a within the culturally appropriate context, but make sure that you you know you say what needs to be said up front. That you bottom line the message. Say, you know, this is going to be a hard conversation. I need to give you some some tough feedback, um, and then you can actually engage in the real conversation from there. You just mentioned the term um, clarity, and I was wondering if you could uh, tell us more about the role clarity plays for a compassionate leader and the caring transparency concept. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a, it's um it's so interesting and again, it sounds simple, something that we all know. Um but clarity is is so foundational in terms of compassionate leadership and there's a number of different aspects that we look at around around clarity as kindness. The first thing is to make sure that we are sharing everything that we can share. And, and this can be really difficult. You know, the vignette in the, the book that we shared around Dave Ricks, the CEO of Eli Lilly, you know, having to share with people that one of their new drugs had just been, um, you know, just been, they'd lost their, their privileged access to it, uh, their rights to it. And, you know, and, and people were asking, well, what does this mean for my job? And he had to say, I don't know. What does this mean for our business? I don't know. And, and he talked about how that was so, so difficult to stand up there and for as a leader to be vulnerable and say over and over again, I don't know in terms of being able to, to address some tough questions, but it's that transparency and that clarity that at least then enables people to know where they stand, they know what's happening, um, and then they can be a part of the solution. And so the first thing is really making sure, and of course, you know, there are some things that you can't always share with people. 
but to be able to be as open and clear as possible. But the other aspect of that is to make sure that you check in, you know, that that feedback loop to make sure that what I'm sending is what you're receiving and being willing to stay in the conversation to say, okay, Michael, so what did that, did, did that land for you? And what did you think I just told you? And, and then also to be able to say, and, you know, and how does this make you feel? You know, can we have an authentic conversation? And, and I'm willing to, to stay in that conversation. And maybe you tell me, Jacqueline, I didn't like how you said that, or I didn't like what you said. And I don't agree with you. And for me to be able to stay in that conversation, to be able to enable that person to, to really express um, their frustrations or whatever it is. So all of those things tied together create a clarity and transparency. So Jacqueline, you mentioned hard conversations. I was wondering, are there any strategies you could offer from your book uh, helping leaders to have those conversations? Yeah, I think one one that really inspired uh, Meek was the idea of having, you know, if you're entering into a hard conversation, is knowing, it's called the first sentence, knowing how you're going to open the conversation. So really thinking about that. Um, and the second thing is how you want to end the conversation. So really, you know, knowing that you're going to start it by saying, Michael, you know, we've got to sit down, we've got to have this conversation. This is what it's about. So you can be really well prepared for that first and knowing at the end, Michael, um, you know, I really want to make sure that we follow up in, in a week from now so that we can follow up and see, you know, give you the chance to be able to reflect or whatever it might be. But the idea of being able to have those bookends of what you're going to start the conversation, how you're going to end the conversation um, also gives you the opportunity to allow the conversation to unfold in the middle with being able to be more present, to be able to be responsive and not reactive if the person gets upset during the during the actual the guts and, and the, the the hard aspects of the conversation. So that's one strategy that I certainly have applied and found very inspiring. Jacqueline, what um, prompted your research in this area? And can you tell us more about how you folks conducted the research and who participated? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the first thing is that, uh, as you know, we we have been doing work uh, looking at um, what makes a successful leader in the 21st century now for, for many years. Uh, and, uh, and it was one of the things that uh, in our last book, we looked at what makes a great leader. And we really saw, you know, three qualities around mindfulness, selflessness, and compassion are really the keys to being success uh, for a leader today. And what we found though, after we published that book a few years back, um, what we found was we kept on coming across this, this idea for leaders um, that to do hard things that they had to close their heart. And so that was really the inspiration for the book is to really dive into how to do hard things in a human way. And, and one of the things that we found so inspiring is Every leader that we spoke with, we asked them two questions, which really inspired us. And again, as I said earlier, in our research journey, we had the privilege of being able to interview over 350 C-suite executives, mostly CEOs and CHROs, because we thought about hard and human. We thought the CEOs and the CHROs would have the best perspectives on hard and human. But the two questions that we asked them, which were really quite inspiring, the first one was we said, what's the hardest thing that you ever had to do and tried to do it in a human way? And Michael, it was really inspiring. You know, there were there were there were tears. You know, these these amazing leaders that oftentimes we think of as, you know, maybe we put on a pedestal or maybe we're judgmental about them. But just seeing them really talk about these really tough experiences that they'd had, and 
and that they really had to figure out how to be able to do them in a human way uh, was really quite inspiring. The second question we asked, which was kind of a fun question, was we said, why'd you agree to do this interview? And the answer to that was also really inspiring. One of the things that we heard over and over again was that they said, you know, I've, I, I think I've, at this point in my career, I've learned a lot about being able to do how to do hard things in a human way, but I'm always learning because I think it's the kind of thing that, that we can always get better at. And so they said they were really inspired not only to hopefully share their stories, which they hope might inspire others, but they were also really inspired by the research in doing hard things in a human way so that they also continue on their learning journey. So Jacqueline, how can folks who are interested learn more about your work and how to become a mindful and compassionate leader? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the question. Uh, so first of all, uh, you can go to our website, so www.potentialproject.com. Um, we have lots of uh, research and articles that are freely available so that you can, can look at some of the studies that I've shared, some of the frameworks that I've talked about, um, all in, in bite-sized pieces so that you can uh, can have a look and hopefully it can help you to be able to support you. You can also uh, join and subscribe to our mailing list so that you can continue to get updates. Um, but I'd also be happy, you know, if you're inspired, you can reach out to me personally. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. You can also email me directly, Jacqueline.Carter at PotentialProject.com. I really believe I also would put myself in the category of the leaders that I shared uh, you know, even though I'm passionate about this stuff and I and I research it and I love talking about it, I'm also a lifelong learner. And I just also am always really inspired by by others in their journey. So I just love to be able to keep the conversation going. Well, I have to say, Jacqueline, it was great to have you back on. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule or your, <laughs> as I said, the busy schedule. But um, this is a wonderful compliment to your uh, other book, The Mind of a Leader. Terrific insights. And once again, thanks so much for joining me and being here. Oh, thank you, Michael. And thank you for everything you do. And, and thank you for all of you listening. And uh, good luck in your journey of bringing more wisdom and compassion to your leadership. The world needs it. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times with Jacqueline Carter, co-author of Compassionate Leadership, How to Do Hard Things in Human Ways. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. WFED Washington, WTOP FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. 
We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.